morning and welcome everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM, 87.6, 87.8 or 88, right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network, wherever you are. Positively different radio in the morning, you're with the Double L team, Lyle and... Lawson! Lawson, how are you this morning? Oh, so good. I'm fantastic. That's amazing. I'm just alive, awake, you know. Yes. Killing it. What are you thankful for? Oh, I'm... Hmm. I'm thankful for the same things all the time. I just I just want to say like, oh yeah, like doing work at the uni and meeting people. It's just, it's just every <laughs> day. To come it's up with something new. Everywhere. Oh, okay, 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 okay. On Sunday, uh, I woke up really early in the morning to watch an American college basketball game with a bunch of Americans. And now... So you're really into American college basketball, right? Not you at all. You are so into not American like, college literally basketball... Literally not until like you're three prepared, days ago. That you're prepared to get up at like, what, 3 in 4 a.m. I left home at 4 a.m. to pick my friend up at 4.30 to go to another so friend's place live. at 5. You couldn't even watch it on YouTube after. Nah, we watched it live because they're from America. So now I'm in with all the Americans. Um, my friends are from Arkansas. So you're giving up on the Asians now moving across to America? <laughs> <laughs> no, I've got my finger in all the pies, Lyle. I'm, I'm, I'm Mr. Worldwide here. Um, but yeah, me and me and my American friends. Um, oh, it was awesome. We watched the basketball and their team lost, which was dumb. Like they were like, oh yeah, our team's got a really, they're like fourth seed for like the national championship, but they lost this like conference game because they just gave up and it was, it was pitiful. But anyways, you know, such is <laughs> oh, life. It was, it was great to, to watch basketball. Pitiful, <laughs> <laughs> I like. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. News topics. Before we do, before we have our positively different news, Lawson is going to bring us the 100-point question for the quiz. Thank you, Lawson. All right, for 100 points, this is a pretty easy one, guys. This is a very, very 100-point question this morning. Who did Adam blame when God confronted him about eating the forbidden fruit? If you know the answer to that one, 0491-064-669 is the number to call. Um, for 100 points, you can make yourself a Faith FM bookmark and bumper sticker, or you can get your points on the board, answer every single question correctly, and you can win every single prize. Uh, but yeah, uh, again, that question was, who did Adam blame when God confronted him about eating the forbidden fruit? 0491-064-669. Fantastic, Lawson. Let's have some uh, positively different news this morning. Okay, this morning we're going to talk about uh, CRISPR or C-R-I-S-P-R-based gene editing because some interesting developments has, have happened in this field and this is something that I really didn't know anything about, like, you know, gene editing. Um, but I've, I've done some research last night and this morning and I've come to find that this is the most interesting, crazy, like... You know, I thought like gene editing, I don't know, they just have like a microscopic knife that they cut genes microscopically with, something like that. I was like, oh, I, I didn't know how. Very like, microscopic scalpel. Yeah, no, that's right. That's right. But it's not like that at all. Like this is really impressive and, and incredible. I thought it was where they ran, you know, like a USB cable into the, like a microscopic USB cable in there and just, you know, reprogrammed hacked it. This hacked, system. Hacked the system. Yeah. No, so actually what takes place is they have this uh, gene editing tool that they found out in the wild. It's called CAS9 or CAS9. Um, and it just like floats around and it finds like specifically 20 let alone DNA sequences um, that matches with it. And then it 
cuts those pieces of DNA out of the rest of the DNA. Uh, that, that's what it does. Like, this is a naturally occurring thing that takes place um, that scientists have have, led, have leveraged for gene editing. Um, and now they've, like, you know, used this for, for a long time. But the problem with it is that sometimes um, it can attach itself to mismatched genes, so ones that have, like, the first 17 letters correct, but 18 through 20 incorrect, yet it'll still dig in. And how they um, observed this under a, a microscope is they watched this piece of, of, of DNA attach itself, this Cas9 um, attach itself to a piece of DNA, and instead of, like, you know, attaching itself to correct DNA, when it attaches itself to incorrect DNA that's kind of like a bit floppy and deformed, it then extends out of itself like some kind of finger and then digs in to the DNA that it's trying to cut, which is incredibly complex. Like, these are microscopic organisms that are, like, impossible to see unless you have a cryo-electron microscope. Like, these... This is these tiny things that we're talking about cutting pieces of DNA, um, which is, yeah, tiny. And so, yeah, these things... Wait, like, how do human beings even think these things up in the first place? Well, they don't think these things up. They just observed it. Yeah, but it, you know, how, do you, how do you observe it? And it's like, well, then it's just... How do... Uh, it just boggles my mind. Yeah. So, Cas9, again, it digs into a piece of DNA, it cuts itself off, and then you get gene editing. But the problem they're having with it is that it would dig in using its kind of little finger mechanism to DNA that, um, yeah, that wasn't, like, 100% all there, and then it would it would make incorrect, like, mismatch cuts, which can be very, very uh, dangerous because you can cut things out of DNA that you don't want to cut out. You, you really want to have there. Yeah, that's right. You can cause problems. Um, so, they've actually... Uh, uh, redesigned Cas9. They've they've kind of you know, and this is this is where they they haven't really got into what's actually taken place. This has come out of the University of Texas in Austin, and I guess this is their like secret secret source that they've been working on. But they've redesigned Cas9. So as it attaches itself to a piece of DNA, the finger that it uses to prop up mismatched DNA and 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 you know m- making correct cuts, they've redesigned that finger to push away mismatched DNA. So that then it can make cuts in the right places. Yeah, this is just wild. Yeah, this is just, just, just insane. And so what that has led to is like a 4,000 uh, times decrease. I was going to say percent. No, it's 4,000 times less likely of making incorrect cuts, which then I'm thinking like, oh, man, how many incorrect cuts is it making if it's 4,000 times less likely? But they've done thousands and thousands of tests on their new version of Cas9. And, yeah, it just floats around and, and finds, you know, DNA to attach to and it pushes away incorrect DNA and it makes cuts and gene edits and you can gene edit whatever you want. And, and like, the result of that, which they've seen specifically... Um, within animals like they've done a lot of gene editing on animals where they've like cut out genes that could lead to cancer or diabetes or whatever like to to make animals like you know bigger and you know meatier and all kinds of things uh but yeah there's lots of applications for this i you know it could move into the human space and that's kind of scary are we out here uh, making a superhuman race but yeah it, this is just insane i was reading this this morning and i'm like Oh, wow. Like, our genes are just doing things that we couldn't even imagine. You know, uh, when 
the you know the theory of evolution was first conceived the the perspective of what cells looked like um for charles darwin was like i don't know just a meshy wall of just glue that kind of fits together but now we know it's just so much more intricate uh and so much you know like we, when we look at cells, when we look at uh, DNA itself, it is so, so, so complex um, to the point where, you know, if I can, you know, put my hat in the ring and just say, I, I think it's impossible to not be designed. So really, really amazing stuff. Um, in other news, this was a, a story that I think I talked about maybe a couple of years ago, but it's kind of had some development since then. Uh, a woman named Joy Milner. Uh, she is from the UK, uh, Manchester specifically. She uh, has the ability to sniff out people with Parkinson's disease. No way. So she can smell people and tell if they have Parkinson's. She can do that for a couple of reasons. Firstly, she has like a crazy hectic nose that is like super powerful. Secondly, um, when you get Parkinson's disease, um, there is an uh, in it makes like this kind of waxy substance your body starts producing this like really really thin waxy substance in the in the pores of the skin um that is like almost undetectable um as well as just an increase in hormones and whatnot in general and so she actually smelt it on her husband um and unfortunately he passed away but she smelt it 12 years before he'd started to develop like neural like motor you know um motor motor skills problems and and whatnot um she yeah she smelt it on him 12 years beforehand and now they've kind of employed her and she has the ability to to smell people and go oh yep your body's producing this wax that is created when you get parkinson's disease and and she can detect it like years and years before people even struggle with their motor skills and then they have the ability to go in there and because because you know when parkinson's happen it's like the the brain is kind of uh dying out and and you, you you're losing a lot of um neurological information and whatnot. And so she has the ability to get in and they can prevent it taking place. You know, um, this is early prevention uh, method. But now um, some scientists based in Singapore are trying to recreate her nose, basically, but digitally. Uh, they, they have, like, come up with a few different models and, and ways to be able to to sniff this stuff out um, so that they can detect it. And she is, you know, just being kind of tested and then giving them uh, data and whatnot. And, and so it's a really epic story of how they're making this applicable this, yeah, to everyone. But yeah. this is based off one lady's hectic nose. I, I think my wife could do this. You reckon? She has a, she has a great sniffer. Mm-hmm. She can she can smell all kinds of stuff when I can't smell it. I've I've got permanently like got COVID because I can never smell anything. <laughs> and she smells every little thing that comes past. Dude, it's so true. Yeah. I remember she walked into the studio and we said something about her smelling stuff, and she's like, "Man, I can smell the sawdust on Lyle's shirt." And I'm like, "I'm sitting next to Lyle. Like you're on the other side of the room. What are you talking about? Behind a plate glass soundproof yeah. <laughs> window, and she can still smell it. Yeah, but dude, there there is jobs for people here who have um yeah you know and th- this lady. Um, Joy Milder is you know, a part of a fantastic initiative, which is which is awesome, and they're they're going to be able to um, prevent Parkinson's disease from happening like almost decades before it even shows its first symptoms. So this is amazing. Um, in other news, oh, just you know, in the, the last couple of seconds I have wrapping up, as we talked about last week, they found Ernest Shackleton's ship, the Endurance, on the bottom of the sea, which is like one of the you know um, naval finds of the century, if not of all time. It's amazing. Um, but now scientists have got in there and they're observing the photos and seeing like hundreds of species that they haven't seen in 
in years and years and years who are camped out on the ship. And so research is going in that direction as well. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. We're about to have the 200-point question for our quiz. Let's see if you can get this one correct. What Greek letter did Jesus pair with Alpha to describe himself? 0491-064-669. Guys, oh, this is a really, really 200-point question, guys. We're giving them to you easy this morning. Um, for 200 points, you can win an issue of Science Magazine, or you can get your points on the board, continue to work your way through the quiz. But again, that question was, what Greek letter did Jesus pair with Alpha to describe himself? It wasn't Omicron. Uh, no. It wasn't Delta. <laughs> It was neither of those. Let's not give any more away because there's only X amount of letters that there are in the Greek Greek alphabet. alphabet. (laughs) And if we work our way through all of them, then we'll give the answer away. That's right. Okay, so we need to talk about some more serious news here this morning. Uh, do give us a call, of course. We'd love to hear from you. Uh, mm-hmm. 0491064669. Talk to us about anything. Talk to us about any of the, the, the news subjects or whatever it might Tell be. Tell us about your day. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. We, uh, we, we hear from all kinds of people about all kinds of issues. Um, or if you just like us to pray for you, we'll pray for mm. you here on, on Faith FM. Mm. Anyway, before we get into the stories which uh, we're mainly going to be focusing on, on, which is the humanitarian aid taking place in Ukraine, uh, this one popped up, which I thought was interesting. Uh, the cruise industry is predicted to start back in April 17. Like, so here's what you got to, you, you're going to be able to do, which, you know, I'd go for it, but uh, you'll get on a close-packed ship with thousands of other people uh, living in small cabins next to each other for, you know, a week, two weeks, whatever it might be, and we're not afraid of that. You know, that seems to be, that's no problem at all, but our police, our fireys, our ambos, our doctors, our nurses, our teachers, and the list goes on and on and on and on and on who are not allowed to work are still not allowed to work because they don't have a vaccination. It's time that these people got back to work. If we Mm. can restart the cruise industry... We can put these people back to work. Mm. It's that simple. Anyway, moving on from there, let's talk about the Ukraine. The uh, oh, Netherlands Russian Orthodox Church has just applied to leave the Russian Orthodox Church and join the Greek Orthodox Church. They're like, nope, we're out of here. So the Russian Orthodox Church in the Netherlands, yes, is leading leaving Russia, yes, for Greece, for Greece. Wow. Okay. Yes. There you go. They've just they just flipped. They're like, they have. Yep. And it's interesting because the Greek Orthodox Church is much more aligned with uh, the Vatican mm. than the Russian Orthodox yeah. Church. The Russian Orthodox Church has the longest memory of, you know, the Crusades and the wars and the abuses that they've suffered at the hands of the Vatican. Mm-hmm. And so they're much more reticent to, you know, to reach across that gulf than what the Greek Orthodox Church sure. is. And, you know, the Greek Orthodox Church, you know, they've, they've shared many things together with the Pope. You know, their patriarch and the Pope have got together on many occasions mm-hmm. in recent years in ecumenical services. Whereas the Russians, you know, they're much more standoffish. In fact, only 17% of Russian Orthodox adherents support full communion with Rome. Mm. Uh, whereas the Ukrainian uh, Eastern Orthodox Church has already got full communion with Rome. Mm. They, they broke away from the Russian Orthodox Church in, in uh, 2019 and uh, like, yep, no, we're breaking from Rome. We're, we're breaking from Russia. We're going with Rome. Well, the Netherlands looks like they're going to break from Russia, but go with uh, Greece instead. Anyway, this uh, comes, of course, as the Pope issues another passionate plea uh, to end the war in Ukraine. And using similar language to what he used before, he described Mariupol, uh, which is the city that is uh, under siege right now, 
uh, as being a martyred city. In other words, uh, this is a city that is being destroyed because of their faith. In other words, this is a religious war. A martyr mm. is someone who dies for their faith, and because you know the the Ukrainians have joined the uh, with full communion with the Roman Catholic Church, then he sees this as a war against his church, his people. And I just question the the wisdom of calling this a religious war because any time you bring religion into a war, it is like throwing fuel on the fire. Mm. Anyway, um, then you've got, uh, in that same city, you've got a convoy of uh, humanitarian aid because this is a city that has been under siege. Of course, they're running out of water, they're running out of food, they're running out yeah, of wow. uh, medical supplies, their hospital has been bombed, uh, etc., and so one of their hospitals has been bombed, and so a Russian Orthodox priest or a group of Russian Orthodox priests have accompanied 90 tons of humanitarian aid into the city. So this is this is very interesting because they are Russian Orthodox priests mm-hmm. who are guarding the aid, the humanitarian aid going into the city. And the reason they're doing so is because, you know, different organizations have been trying and trying and trying to get aid into this particular city. And, of course, the Russian soldiers won't let them go through. Mm. And so this time they've gone in with a kind of a human shield of Russian Orthodox priests. Wow. So while the Pope calls this a religious war between Russian Orthodox and Roman Catholics, essentially, the Russian Orthodox... Priests are supplying humanitarian aid to his people. Yeah, it's just, it's just, it's just fascinating, and I fully support. I mean, these guys. Basically, what they said was that if they are on the outside of the trucks, the Russian soldiers are less likely to shoot at them. Yeah. So they just like put on their full vestments and uh, ride, on, ride, ride in on the their trucks. Robes. Put on all of their robes, right, and, and all of their, you know, their, their um, icons and so forth, mm. and ride in on the trucks so that the humanitarian aid can get in there. That takes a fair chunk of courage. Yeah, well. You know that you're going into an area of heavy fighting where bullets mm. are going to be flying and you're going to be driving over roads that have landmines in them. Mm. There's going to be shells and rockets flying around the place and there's every likelihood that some trigger-happy person is going to you know, you. light off a few rounds in the wrong direction and you're done. And they're like, no, there's people there that need support and we will put our lives on the line for people. Wow, I hope this is Christianity in action right here. It's just hoping that people that they come across are reverent, you know. It's like, oh, please. <laughs> oh, absolutely. But please don't shoot a priest. <laughs> like, that's right. That's insane. From either side. Mm. From either side of this conflict. And so that's a, um, yeah, that's, uh, it, it, it's good to see Christian, true Christianity actually in uh, in action. Of course, they are endeavouring on their way back out. The plan is to evacuate civilians. There's still about mm. 50,000 children uh, in Mariupol, wow. which is you know a lot of civilians, and they really do need to be evacuated uh, as that, sea, that, that city is under siege. Um, around the world, places like the UK, they, of course, are gearing up to welcome refugees, and they've been well-practised at this. They've been taking refugees from Syria, from Ukraine, sorry, not from Ukraine, from uh, Hong Kong, from Afghanistan, uh, particularly Hong Kong and Afghanistan over the last 12 months. And the UK government, this is interesting, this is an interesting one because they have said that there is to be no limit on the number of refugees that the UK takes from Ukraine. And uh, That's okay. a lot of refugees. That's, that's, that, I, 
why was there okay if that is the policy for ukraine why is that the policy for ukraine whereas it wasn't the policy for syria um uh afghanistan or hong kong what's the difference here that's what i want to know or libya mm. i want to know what the difference is because I support the idea of supporting refugees mm-hmm. and we need to be a global community in supporting refugees because your bordering countries can't support the numbers of refugees mm-hmm. that are going to come across the borders. We need to distribute them around the world and we need to do that in an organised fashion. But why place limits on one group of people and not on another? Well, I think the UK have already kind of demonstrated their fear of you know, outside influence within their country. Like, be, okay. given the fact they like left the EU. Yes, and I can see that uh, when they look at Ukraine, they see people that have a similar religion. Mm-hmm. Anglicanism and uh, Orthodox is almost identical. Yes, yes. Um, they've got a similar religion. They're coming from a similar economic background. And I think the and they look similar. I think the real issue here is the economic background. Mm-hmm. Uh, because they are fearful of um, economic refugees rather than war refugees. Yeah. And an economic refugee is not a refugee. They are an illegal immigrant. That's right. And I think that's probably the real issue, but even still it looks very bad and it raises a whole bunch of question marks in my mind because as Christians we need to be supporting refugees wherever we can. Mm. Um, of course, illegal immigrants, totally different, totally different kettle of fish. Mm. Uh, because, you know, do we want to bring people into the country that are prepared to break the law? Now, uh, where are we up to? Oh, so many stories here that we could talk about. Um, yeah, the uh, Archbishop of York and the Archbishop of Canterbury have come out and uh, supported these schemes, and they already have a whole bunch of websites and everything all up and running from previous uh, refugee intakes, mm. and they're just changing the language across to Ukrainian and Russian. Wow. And they're set to go because they've had a lot of practice at it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Before we go to our interview of the day, we have a 300-point question for our quiz. Lawson's going to bring it to you, as he always does. That's right. For 300 points, what was the first name of the apostle known as the Zealot? 0491 is the number to call if you know the answer. For 300 points, you can win yourself a pocket sermon. But if you know the name of the apostle called the Zealot, you will win that prize. 0491 Call us or text us. Always does my head in where Jesus chose his disciples from. What do you he mean? starts with fishermen, then he gets a tax collector, then he recruits a member of the local terrorist cell. You know, <laughs> it's just like it's pretty wild. Punch. It's like yeah, like call up Al Qaeda. Oh yeah, we want some people. <laughs> we, we need a representative amongst the disciples. It's just yikes. Yeah, crazy. Yeah, I tell you. Well, anyway, they did jo- great work. They did. They mm. did. Joining us on the phone this morning uh, to talk about, well, disasters, uh, Ukraine, but also more local disasters with the floods is Denison Grillman, who is the CEO of ADRA in Australia and New Zealand. Denison, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be um, part of the show. Denison, we've been talking this morning about uh, some of the humanitarian efforts that are being uh, put forward in Ukraine. So we might start there. Um, because we've already been discussing that. Now, ADRA is obviously you know disaster and famine uh, relief agency of the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Has the Seventh-day Adventist Church been involved in supporting the uh, humanitarian effort in uh, Ukraine? 
Well, thank you for that question. Um, ADRA and the uh, Adventist Church are actually working together in, um, in the response in the Ukraine. Uh, we do have um, various interventions in country, um, but most of the, um, uh, the, the actual response is actually in, in the border of you know, all the surrounding countries. So we're talking about um, Poland, we're talking about Hungary, we're talking about Slovenia, we're talking about Romania in particular. So in all of those um, places, Adra and the church are really working together to see what needs to be done. For instance, in, in Poland, um, Adra is really, um, again, with the church locating temporary accommodation. And some of the churches actually have been used as shelters, uh, provisional shelters for at least a few days to help the uh, the refugees sort of see which way they're going to go. Yeah, that's fantastic. And I guess, you know, obviously you're in charge of the work in Australia and New Zealand, and so this is not uh, directly uh, your job, but it's good to, you know, to get reports and to hear back as to what is uh, what, what what is actually taking place over there, and you know we do have these facilities, churches and halls, and and you can put a lot of people into those facilities uh, as they pass through on their way to more permanent uh, residences, and so it's 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 great to hear that that is actually taking place. You did mention that we do have some in country uh, things happening as well. Are you able to talk about that, or is that um, sort of a little bit more sensitive? Um, well, that's a little bit more sensitive because, uh, again, people keep shifting from place to place. Um, but ADRA, for instance, there is, is um, um, providing food supplies, uh, providing you know clothing and, and not shelter because, again, they're moving from, from place to place and the situation keeps changing. Um, so it's, it's not a, a massive operation. We've had, for instance, um, um, uh, a convoy of um, vans from Romania and also Poland going into the Ukraine to provide, you know, again, immediate supplies. And that has been um, very well received. Um, but again, you do have um, a very large number of um, refugees or Ukrainians leaving right to the Ukraine. And so that's where I would say the hotspots are. Um and, but again, in, in the Ukraine, um, to the extent that it is possible, um, ADRA and the church are working together as well, but it's more in the, uh, the areas of immediate needs. We just read a story this morning about, or heard a story this morning about um, Russian Orthodox priests who have actually um, gone into Mariupol to, uh, to more or less guard a convoy of humanitarian aid because... All previous convoys had been stopped by the Russian military, have laid siege to the city and, and turned back. And they're like, well, if we go, if, if, if the priests go in, we'll form a, uh, a human shield because the Russians won't shoot at priests. Um, would Adrian ever do anything that dangerous? Well, that's a good question. We've heard of uh, human shields um, in different places already there. Um, that's mostly, um, again, organized by civilians and um, I guess, you know, maybe the, the religious, um, you know, people is also feeling quite strong about it. Well, um, EDRA would probably not, you know, encourage people to be standing in front of, um, <laughs> um, in front of the military there and so forth. But, you know, people are really feeling compelled, you know, to do something like that. And, and I think, you know, um, yeah, there's nothing that is stopping them. Mm. Um, 
but you know we we usually would um you know support more in the uh, um in the um material needs in the emotional needs um you know with shelter and so forth and and but again also advocacy and, and protection uh, whether we would encourage them to stand in front of the tanks that's uh, not something that we have done yet <laughs> yeah, so, but people will do what people will do when they feel strongly under conviction i guess and uh we do we do recognize the heroism of people who are prepared to do that um even though we might uh, not be in a fish in a position to officially sanction uh, such events um Denison, i want to move closer to home now uh, of course, an area that you're directly involved with, which is, you know, CEO of ADRA in Australia and New Zealand. Uh, the east coast of Australia has been, you know, smashed by what people have been describing a one in 500 years flood in certain areas. Uh, what what are we doing here? What's happening here? Well, there is quite a bit happening. As, as we know, um, the floods have affected um, a very part of the country, especially in North New South Wales and the South Queensland. Um, initially, we helped um, quite a bit with um, food delivery, food parcels, um, temporary accommodation, um, even in some churches and, and evacuation centres. Um, but then also, as uh, the waters receded, with uh, you know a lot more uh, sort of clean up activities, um, and something that is emerging quite a bit. Um, and today, we actually having meetings with you know the, the various. Uh, leaders and organizations that are working these places, and that is the provision of um, psychosocial support. Um, we see that mental health is now a very big thing, and it's really important that we are one of the uh, um, actors in this particular space. So we're talking to um, our um, local church um, church pastors and, and um, elders and, and other people in the areas um, to sort of understand how we can actually, um, again, make a difference in that particular space because um, there is a lot of trauma. Um, as we know, a lot of people have lost every single thing, their homes, and, and also in some ways their hope. And we really want to make sure that we are there, um, you know, to listen um, and also to um, share words of, of hope and and, uh, and be there for them. So that's something that is going to be um, happening the next few days. This is a, 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 an interesting aspect of what we're doing here and something that I guess in previous years we haven't uh, addressed as much as the, uh, you know, the psychosocial um, support networks. Um, have we found in the past that, you know, when people face, you know, this kind of disaster that even when we uh, provide money and materials uh, and and physical support that they become paralysed or crippled by the, I guess, PTSD from the trauma that they've gone through in losing everything and, you know, going through a natural disaster like this? Yes, uh, that's something that we are, um, I guess, coming across more and more. It depends a little bit on the social networks that people have. Um, if they are supported by um, by their families, by um, you know their friends, by their um, religious communities, and so forth, that usually comes quite you know sort of naturally. But many people are not. Many people isolated. Uh, many people are pretty much experiencing the whole thing on their own. And, and again, we see that uh, more and more we need to really um, 
be part of, of that um, you know journey with them. And it is your writing saying that in the past, perhaps we have not been as active. You know, we've always um, looked at the physiological needs first and survival needs. Of course, you know, that's all very, very important. But um, that's really for the very immediate response. It's really, if we want to see the people, um, shall we say, building back, you know, their, their lives and so forth, it's really important that we step into the more recovery space. And that includes um, the emotional support, you know, to to allow them to um, again be able to to face the situation in, in a positive way. When a disaster like this takes place, uh, you know, the, the floods here in Australia, what are the initial things that Adra does uh, in, in response to that? Because I mean, we hear stories of churches. You know, it seems that all of the churches in that area, uh, regardless of denomination, have mobilised in some way or other, to help their communities. Um, what? How, do, how does ADRA get started? Is, is it primarily the churches? Do you work through the local churches? Or do you have teams, equipment, etc., that you can send in, say, directly from, from headquarters, so to speak, uh, to help out in these kinds of situations? This is a very um, important question. Just last year, we started a program here in Australia that we call Disaster Ready Church. And and we've been um, equipping different uh, churches in disaster-prone areas to actually already have a plan. So in case that is a disaster, this is what they would be doing. Now, a lot of the, the churches that were affected this time were not yet part of you know, that initial trial that we started last year. But the intent is really to equip these churches and, and again, churches in across Australia uh, where, um, you know, in disaster-prone areas to really be able to actually respond using their own assets, you know, their volunteers around and so forth. But for that to happen, uh, a plan needs to be in place, Okay. And so this is something, again, that we started and we're planning to do going forward. But, you know, just going back, um, you know, to the um, the flood situation now, usually what we do, uh, the first thing is we get in touch with the, the conference EDRA directors. So we do have EDRA directors in the various, um, um, you know, conference areas in, in Australia. So in this case, you know, with South Queensland and North New South Wales, so we would get in touch with them, they would immediately contact the local pastors who will then, you know, interact with um, the the members of the church, but also with the community leaders to understand what the situation is. So our first step is really to understand, to do a quick, a rapid needs assessment. Based on that, you know, rapid needs assessment, then we would you know, activate pretty much a plan. We try to use local resources as much as possible for the floods. For instance, we had um, uh, an expert join um, David Halting, uh, North New South Wales and so forth, to put a plan in place and help coordinate, you know, the activities. So we may activate a team that may come from the, uh, the headquarters, you know, office, but we also, as much as possible, want to work with, um, the local team of volunteers with op shop um, volunteers and, and church volunteers that are already in place. That's absolutely fantastic. Uh, in in Australia, I mean, when we talk, when we talk about natural disasters and we look at natural disasters, 
fire and flood, are those the two big ones for Australia? Yeah, fires and flood are for sure, you know, the biggest ones. So, And I guess in New Zealand you would be looking at earthquakes as well? Earthquakes, yeah, that would be the, the main one for New Zealand and flooding in some areas as well. Mm, mm. Now, with you mentioned the disaster-ready churches. This is a, this seems like a great scheme where you know you can go in, you can do training, you can, and you can set up systems so that when a disaster hits, a church can just immediately respond, and uh, everything just clicks into gear and starts happening. Uh, this is fantastic for Adri to do. It's fantastic for our Adventist churches. Uh, I, I think there's probably a lot of other large denominations that might have something similar, but there'd be a whole bunch, I would think, of smaller churches around Australia and even, you know, some uh, maybe mosques or, or synagogues or whatever that that might benefit from something like this. Do they have the opportunity of uh, joining in and becoming a part of uh, this this program? Um, this is a very, um, very, again, good question. We do... Intend to first start with the um, um, Seventh Day Adventist churches, um, but also you know all of the um, um, community groups that are part of that community. Okay, so uh, the shall we say the Seventh Day Adventist Church may be the coordinating body um, in that particular area, but working with SES, working with other religious groups, working with the council and so forth. So that, that is the, the idea. So the plan would not just be for, for the um, Adventist churches, no, but we would um, pretty much start um, you know, the disaster program with those churches and then involving our stakeholders. Yeah, this is amazing, and uh, we really appreciate the hard work that you're putting in. I mean, you and I, we both know Bible prophecy. We know that uh, these disasters are only going to increase, and so the relevancy of what you are doing is only going to increase. Okay, before we finish off, uh, because we are well and truly out of time, I do need to ask people that want to support either the floods or the humanitarian aid to uh, Ukraine, how do they go about supporting those projects? Two ways. The first one is uh, through their prayers. Um, you know, we do have um, a number of things happening at the same um, time. We do have um, teams, as we said, in, in around the Ukraine, in the Ukraine, um, around Australia, in Tonga, and other places. Um, so prayers would be really welcome. The second thing is a financial contribution. That is actually the best way for us to quickly mobilize resources. So if people could really visit our uh, website at edra.org.au and make their contribution, that would be uh, um, very welcomed. Okay, so that is address spelled A-D-R-A dot org dot au. Very simple website, A-D-R-A, A-D-R-A, .org.au. Head over there and make a contribution. You can contribute to these various projects that, uh, and, and uh, Denison in, included Tonga there as well, which, of course, when the new disaster hits, the old one is forgotten so quickly, but it continues to be a place of need, and they're going to need your resources. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.